This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When the ice breaks, when the heart shake in the town and the moxie in the winter, the end of my love for now and you've spent your summer. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the 72nd episode of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week we do a little bit of time traveling here as we go back 50 years to find out all about the hockey news of that time period. In this episode, we are looking at the week of March 8th to 14th 1971. Our podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors, Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive and their support has been crucial uh, in enabling us to conduct all the research we do to bring you all this great hockey information. We are also sponsored by the Breakwell Brewing Company in beautiful downtown Port Colborne, Ontario. The folks at the Breakwall make some of the finest craft beers in southern Ontario, and as far as I'm concerned, they've got the best pub food on the planet. When things finally open up for uh, completely again, I would love to meet any of our listeners for a beer and a burger or a pizza at the Breakwall. If you like what we do here uh, each week in the podcast and every day on Twitter, uh, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years and subscribing to this podcast. Uh, your subscription will get you early access to each week's episode plus uh, access to exclusive content that we put out uh, two or three times a month for our subscribers. Right now, in fact, we uh, have just completed the first of our trilogy documentary series on the passing of Terry Sachuk last year, in which we look uh, in particular at how the media treated Terry's death. And it's quite an in-depth look at exactly how the news uh, came out and what people were thinking and how a lot of the reporters uh, dealt with reporting a very sad story. And do not forget to check out the Hockey Podcast Network, where we're now host, uh, housed uh, these days. We have been joined up with the network, and we're more than happy to be a part of all that. 
of the Hockey Podcast Network hosts over 50 podcasts dedicated strictly to hockey, and they can be found at www.thehockeypodcastnetwork.com. Lots of team-specific programs, plus some very interesting general hockey shows as well. Last week, we had a a, a very busy week. Uh, We got a peek at the possible future of hockey broadcasting as the Vancouver Canucks announced they were going to be showing some home games on closed-circuit TV. Could this be the wave of television broadcasting for hockey in the future? We had more on Gordie Howe's situation with the Red Wings as he made his way back from Florida and returned in a big way to the Detroit lineup. And last week, the National Hockey League trade deadline came and went with very little fanfare, far different from the media extravaganza that we experience now 50 years later. In this week, we will talk about uh, the news around the league, but here are some of the stories uh, that we're looking at. Sabres rookie Gilbert Perrault will tie an NHL record. Word will come out that once again, there might just be a buyer for that troubled Pittsburgh Penguins franchise. And this buyer apparently is pledging to keep the team in Pittsburgh. And another important National Hockey League record will be shattered this week. We'll tell you who did it and uh, exactly how it was described in the game in which it was broken. So we'll begin the week with uh, news and notes from around the NHL and actually uh, we'll start off with a couple of quotes uh, from different hockey personalities this week that caught, caught our attention. New Minnesota North star Ted Hampson, he was traded to the team from the California Seals uh, last week. Uh, the captain of the Seals, but coach general manager Fred Glover felt that Ted uh, probably was worth including to bring Tommy Williams to the team. Tommy a couple of years younger than Ted and a very skilled hockey player. Well, Ted uh, had a quote for Mike Lamey of the Minneapolis Star about joining the North Stars. He said, my hockey wasn't going any place but downhill with California. Ted went on to say that your confidence as a hockey player improves a lot when you start playing with a winner. A lot of goals seem to go in now that you're missing before. Well, of course, what Ted is referring to was the Seals are a mess, both off the ice and on the ice where they can't seem to win a game at all, except maybe the odd game they win almost by accident. So going to Minnesota, who has a good shot at the playoffs, was a welcome, almost like a promotion for Ted Hampson. Another quote that came to us from the Flyers coach, Vic Stasiak, and I've ragged on Vic a lot this year, but he was asked about the tough schedule his team faces in its fight to make the Stanley Cup playoffs this spring. The Flyers' schedule is very heavy going down the stretch with games against the Eastern Division, and that probably is a detriment to a Western Division team, but it sounds here like Vic is actually trying to make chicken soup out of, uh, well, well, you get the idea. Vic Stasiuk said, last year we lost six straight at the end of the season to teams in our own division and that cost us our playoff spot. This year we have a number of games left with teams in the Eastern Division and we might just play better against the East. Speaking of the Flyers, a nice scene developed outside the arena in uh 
Bloomington, Minnesota, Sunday night after the Flyers had played the North Stars. The Flyers were boarding their bus uh, to the airport, and a very shy young fan approached uh, Flyers forward Jean-Guy Gendron with a picture and timidly asked if he could get an autograph. Well, Gendron, ever the gentleman, of course, smiled. He took the photograph, he looked at it, then had a bit more of a big grin, and he asked the young lad if he still wanted him to sign the photo. Uh, the young boy kind of shyly shook his head yes, and uh, Jean-Guy Gendron put his name on the photo saying, well, if you don't mind, I don't mind. And then, of course, he signed the picture. The photo was a team photograph of the Minnesota North Stars. But the young boy was just happy to get an NHL signature, and Jean-Guy Gendron was just more than happy to accommodate. As we're heading down the home stretch to the playoffs, it's apparent that the Montreal Canadiens will once again appear in the postseason after missing the playoff party entirely in 1969-70. It would appear that the Habs will finish third and thus have to face the powerful Boston Bruins, which could mean an early exit for the Montreal Canadiens. Jack Dolmage of the uh, Windsor Star examined the situation. Jack wrote that the Montreal Canadiens clinched the playoff berth Sunday, which is perhaps not as exciting as the marriage of Pierre Trudeau to Margaret Sinclair, but then they didn't clinch one last year, an unheard of miss after 22 years. Naturally, this brought the atom bomb into clearer focus, more specifically, the Boston Bruins. Two years ago, Canadians knocked out the Bruins in six games of a semifinal. Today, they are running third and almost certain to face the awesome Bruins in the first round of the 1971 Stanley Cup tournament. Asked what Canadians might do in this situation, a hockey writer who shall remain nameless for one of the Montreal newspapers paused a few seconds and looked squarely in the eye to us and said, run. Canadians coach Al McNeil, though, he doesn't look at it this way at all. Allison Francis McNeil, 35 and rosy cheeks, coach of the Canadians in succession of Claude Ruel, who resigned or was fired, depending on who you believe. He was uh, the guy who's got to lead Canadians, probably against the Bruins. McNeil says, with a little help from somebody, we can still finish second. We've got two games left with the Rangers, and they have 13 points to make up in 14 games. An almost impossible dream. It would be less difficult for the Toronto Maple Leafs to make up eight points on Montreal. That's how far back Toronto is behind Montreal. But the Canadians are playing almost as good as any team in the league right now, far better than the Leafs. The Canadians are gunning for second place, but it sounds like Al McNeil is uh, acknowledging the inevitable. If you finish third, you're playing Boston, and that may be the last hockey you play this spring. The Max Kaminsky Trophy is had been in the past awarded to uh, sort of like the Lady Bing winner of the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series, but the Red Tilson Award sort of covers the same ground there. So the uh, brain trust of the OHA decided that now the Kaminsky Trophy will go to the best defenseman in the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series, and they decided this week 
that that person is Jocelyn Gavrima of the Montreal Junior Canadiens. Joss is sure to be a top five pick in this year's amateur draft and Peanuts O'Flaherty of the Vancouver Canucks has even gone on record as saying if the Canucks get the first overall pick, Gavermont would be the guy he'd want over Guy Lafleur or Marcel Dion. Many hockey writers, including Stan Fischler, are reporting this week that Alan Eagleson is proposing a profit-sharing scheme between the National Hockey League players and the owners. Here's what the Eagle had to say in uh, multiple reports. Eagleson said that he believed that the owners themselves would make the profit-sharing proposition to the players and not vice versa. The Eagle said, I'm satisfied that eventually professional hockey will have to adopt some type of profit-sharing plan. Eagle went on to say, the way things are going, there wouldn't be enough money in the owner's pockets to absorb the spiraling upward trend of hockey salaries. According to Eagleson's proposal, the profit-sharing program would enable players to obtain a certain percentage of the club's profits over and above their standard salary. Now, does he mean that this would kind of have a standard salary? Uh, Is this the beginning of the thoughts of a salary cap? Well, Eagleson says it could be done on the basis of 100 units for the entire team. Eagleson says that at the start of the season, the players would meet and work out an assessment of how many units each player is worth. Now, I don't know what that sounds like to you, but it sounds to me like Alan Eagleson is is working with the owners for a way to maximize their profits and cap the player's salary, and he's going to blame it on the players who will assess among themselves on each team who's worth what. Wow, I'll bet that's going to be great for team unity. Sometimes you wonder just who Alan Eagleson is working for. Sid Abel, the former Red Wings general manager who resigned from the team this year after he was not allowed to fire coach Ned Harkness by owner Bruce Norris, is back working in hockey again and we knew that wouldn't take very long. Uh, Sid has been signed as a special assignment scout for the Los Angeles Kings. Now let the speculation begin as to when he will take over a Kings team that has struggled mightily in the past few seasons as either coach or general manager. Well, the the thought seems to be that Sid will end up being the general manager. Larry Regan will be kicked upstairs as a vice president uh, position. And the very interesting name that surfaces this week is that the coach of the LA Kings next season would be Alex Del Vecchio. Not an interesting concept, I think. The Lester Past Patrick Award dinner was held in New York on uh, Tuesday night this week. And there were a few uh, news items that came out of that. One that caught our interest was a statement by Clarence Campbell, who disclosed that Major League Hockey may be installed in a new arena in the city of Atlanta, Georgia, as early as the 19th. 
1973-74 season. The Georgia building will be completed in September of 1972 and it apparently will seat 15,000 for hockey. Now the question will be, will they be able to find 15,000 people in Atlanta who care about going to a hockey game? It was also learned this week that the troubled Pittsburgh Penguins franchise uh, may have a buyer. That's if this isn't just wishful thinking on the part of the NHL moguls. The Canadian press had uh, this story, and we'll just pass it on. An offer by a group made up of three Detroit men and an Ohio company to buy the money short Pittsburgh Penguins will be voted on by the National Hockey League owners, according to National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell. The offer is made by brothers James E. and William E. Fuller and James Sterling, all of Detroit, and Management Control Corporation of East Liverpool, Ohio. And the offer apparently is large enough to cover the Penguins' indebtedness, which is about $5.7 million. That's what Campbell told reporters at a briefing at a, uh, the end of a day-long meeting of the NHL governors. This is not a straight cash offer, and there are conditions, and one of the conditions, which may be rejected or approved within 15 or 20 days, is that impresario Tom Cousins of Atlanta, Georgia, be given the right of first refusal of a National Hockey League franchise in the next expansion round, which is expected to be a few years from now. Who's this Tom Cousins guy? Well, he is the owner of the Atlanta Hawks of the National Basketball Association, and he is putting up an undisclosed portion of the Pittsburgh purchase price in return for the pledge to get first chance at a big league hockey franchise for a new arena that he's building in Atlanta. And there's always a catch, isn't there? Well, Clarence Campbell did emphasize that the Penguins franchise, over which the NHL has been exercising fiscal control for some time, will remain in Pittsburgh. Several offers to move it elsewhere have been outright rejected by the league. Campbell must like this uh, plan, probably because it puts NHL in the American South. And he said that if the governors approve the Pittsburgh's ownership switch, now offered to them, Cousins or someone that he designates, Cousin designates, will get first consideration at the price and on the terms to be determined when the NHL expands once again. But Campbell did say, I have no forecast at all for the timing of further expansion. There is no possibility of NHL expansion happening before the 1973-74 season. Campbell also explained that if Cousins were to get the new Atlanta franchise, if in fact there will ever be a new Atlanta franchise, he would first need to pull his money out of the Pittsburgh team before he could own another NHL team. And then you know what might happen? We're going to have this whole scenario take place all over again, unless the new owners of the Penguins can get the crowds up from what they have been the last two years. 
Well, Clarence Campbell actually figures that this is entirely doable. He says that Pittsburgh has maintained a quite remarkable improvement in attendance and is operating in the black. I would like to see those books. However, the club's earnings are not sufficient to repay its indebtedness, and that's the bottom line. They're in debt for $5.7 million. Campbell says, well, they have some other assets that actually makes the debt only $5.2 million. Campbell shows he's a true lawyer at heart when he was asked to comment on the prospect that the Pittsburgh franchise would sell for less than the $6 million charged Vancouver and Buffalo in the last expansion round. Well, Campbell said that the purchase price must be put up in a lump sum rather than spread over a number of years, as in the case of the Canucks and the Sabres. So, of course, it probably wouldn't be as much as $6 million. What he's saying is this team isn't even worth as much as an expansion team was last year. Well, it didn't take long for the story to to come out in Pittsburgh, uh, penned by Jimmy Jordan of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, that uh, stated that the Penguins had been sold to the Fuller Brothers of Detroit and the Management Control Corporation of East Liverpool, Ohio. Campbell went on to say that William Blair is the president of Management Control Corporation. He'll be in on the deal as well and that Tom Cousins, as we previously mentioned, will be putting up a good portion of the money needed to take care of the uh, Penguins debt in exchange for first dibs on that Atlanta franchise was expected to be uh, awarded in time for the 73-74 National Hockey League season. Stan Fischler gives us a story about how the National Hockey League admits it goofed by placing a team in Oakland, and I'll provide a bit of it here, since it did appear in the Toronto Star uh, under the special to the star stories that Stan often submits, but it is a Fischler story, so it's taken under advisement. Although Stan tries to make some dramatic pronouncement by Campbell, at no time did Clarence Campbell admit an NHL mistake in putting the team in the Bay Area. Other than that, he does report fairly accurately just uh, what was going on with this announcement by Clarence Campbell. Stan writes that uh, Campbell disclosed that attendance in Oakland had reached such a critical level that the league was considering a plan whereby the have-clubs would sell players to the have-nots for a substantial price. Now, this was not about admitting that the team in California named the Seals was a mistake at all. They would never admit that. What they're saying is there's two weak teams. They both happen to be in California, although there are weak teams in other cities. And the strong teams were going to have to supply player help to those teams. They've done that before. They did it with the Chicago Blackhawks back in the 50s. And they're thinking about an old solution to a new problem here in 1970, 71 actually. So that's what Campbell was talking about in this plan. Campbell's exact quote provided by Stan says, we are considering some special plan in which the rich teams will make personnel available for substantial sums. Seals are averaging 6,000 fans per game and our break-even figure is 10,000. 
So it's attendance that needs to be boosted. And everyone knows that you have a better team, you're going to have more people in the seats. Campbell knows that, and that's what he's trying to get done here. But the governors will not allow their assets to go to a weaker team without realizing some kind of handsome profit. But there was some actual uh, criticism of the SEALs uh, franchise. Now, the SEALs, as everyone knows at this point, had, because of an earlier trade, given up their first-round pick in this June's amateur draft. And it looks pretty uh, certain that the SEALs are going to finish at the bottom of the heap in the National Hockey League standings this year. That means they would normally get the first pick in the draft, which would give them a young Guy Lafleur out of Quebec or Marcel Dion out of the Ontario a Hockey Association St. Catharines Blackhawks. But the Montreal Canadiens own the SEALs pick. And surprisingly, Campbell criticized the entire SEALs organization for its lack of personnel and twitted owner Charles Finley, who also heads the baseball team in Oakland. Campbell said Finley's knowledgeable in baseball, but he's not that knowledgeable in hockey. Campbell went on to say that the Los Angeles Kings also require personnel rehabilitation. Boy, there's a lawyerly phrase if I've ever heard one. Adding that uh, we are confronted with the same old question of parity. According to Campbell, a committee of general managers will rule on the Help the Have-Nots program in June, presumably at the time of the annual league meetings, which take place as usual every year in Montreal. The uh, league will also consider at that time other techniques not described here in which the weak teams might be assisted. Campbell did say that one idea they've had is to place an embargo on the trading of draft choices and another is to have some sort of alteration to the draft. Now Buffalo Sabres general manager coach Punch Imlach has suggested that some sort of lottery be held so that teams don't intentionally play poorly and able to get the first draft pick in any given year. And I'm sure Imlach will be pushing strongly for that. Well these revelations by Campbell were of course not greeted terribly enthusiastically by some of the general managers. Uh, that were at the governor's meeting, especially those representing uh, what I guess we could designate as the middle class expansion teams, teams like Minnesota and Philadelphia. In fact, the North Stars general manager, Ren Blair, said that in a sense, this plan would almost be condoning a team's mismanagement. It sounds like a form of, oh my God, socialism. If we did a good job, why should we be punished? A lot of people have been surprised at how well Bruce McGregor has played since being traded from the Detroit Red Wings to the New York Rangers. But Emil Francis, the Rangers general manager, he ain't one of them. The cat told Milt Dunnell of the Toronto Star that he's been trying to get Mac for the past five years from the Red Wings, but Detroit general manager Sid Abel would never consider getting rid of Bruce McGregor. Now, once Sid Abel disappeared from the Detroit front office, dealing with Ned Harkness was an easier task for Francis. He got on the phone right away trying to pry McGregor out of Detroit and it was not a difficult thing 
for Francis to do, and he's more than happy about the trade that brought Bruce McGregor to the New York Rangers. You remember a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, longtime Montreal Canadiens veteran Ralph Backstrom being traded to the Los Angeles Kings. Well, we're finding out now that the Blackhawks apparently made a very determined effort to get Backstrom from the Canadiens before they traded him to the Kings. But general manager Sammy Pollock of the Habs, he knew that sending Backstrom to Chicago was not going to help the Kings finish ahead of the Seals. And that was the real goal of that transaction. You, as we just mentioned, you know the Canadians own the Seals' first draft pick. So the more games the Seals lose, the better it is for the Habs. And the more games the Seals' rivals win, same thing applies. Last week we told you about a uh, junior D team in Southern Ontario, the Tilbury Bluebirds. Uh, and the awful season they had. We, we just briefly mentioned it as their season came to an end. The Canadian press gives us this story on the team today, and I thought we'd relate it to you here. No matter what happens in the years to come, the Tilbury Hockey Club, on its 1970-71 record alone, will forever be known as the Bluebirds of Unhappiness. No matter how you look at it, the Great Lakes Junior League team had a losing season. In one game, just as they had the roar, you can do it, mighty team, going well, the kid was leading the cheers, actually lost his voice. In another of their games in an out-of-town rink, they lost the key to their dressing room. There was no spare, and they had to break into the room at the end of the uh, final period. And overall, in their 40-game season, they had no wins, 40 losses, and no ties. But wait, the Birds got another chance when a league ruling right at the end of the season said that all six teams would get automatic entry into the playoffs. That, said Coach Don Hayward Jr., was like a bloody miracle. It was as if the good Lord had come down from heaven and said, Fellows, you get a second chance. Well, the mighty team, as they're referred to in their home rink, surged out of the playoffs to keep their record unblemished, finishing the year 0-43-0. Sometimes, such as on the night Petrolia beat them 20-1, they were completely buried. And sometimes, such as the night Dresden beat them 5-4, scoring the winner with only 18 seconds to play, it was fate that would cheat them. But nevertheless... Whether it was fate or their own poor play, they were always losers. In one playoff game, the Windsor Royals beat them 4-3 to on two breakaway goals. And the coach said they were both flukes and one of them was completely several feet offside. Now the next night, Bluebird captain Duffy Welch got the same type of breakaway, but the echo of the whistle was still hung in the rafters, calling the play offside as uh, Hayward left the building later that night, muttering, just once, I'd like to, and his voice trailed off, and he finished by saying, things are going to be different next year. Coach Hayward, expecting to be back next year, even after such a terrible season, says that the team is going to have a very large training camp next September and bring in players from all over, and that this team is going to win. 
There are even plans to send some younger players to a hockey school operated by Eddie Jockerman and Walt Kachuk of the New York Rangers of the National Hockey League. Goalie Chuck Turner wants to ask the experts, how do you stop three-on-one breakaways, which seem to be a real malady for this team all season? Now, goalie Turner is a good kid, and he's a good boy from Wheatley, Ontario, uh, not just uh, too far south of Tilbury. Turner says, everybody from Wheatley can hack it. All we needed to win was six more guys from Wheatley. Of course, that begs the question, how does a player from Wheatley end up playing in Tilbury? Well, well, Chuck says, last year I played defense in the Midget House League, but I had all the goal equipment, so there I was in Tilbury. Turner was asked, do you ever wish you were still back in Wheatley? And wistfully... Chuck says, yeah, sometimes I do. Some of those times must have been during games this season in which poor Chuck Turner faced 80 to 90 shots. The Bluebirds wound up the regular season with 79 goals for and 324 against. On Wednesday evening, Phil Esposito of the Boston Bruins tied the record of most goals in a season, which up until that point had been held by Bobby Hull of the Chicago Blackhawks. Phil scored his 58th of the season before 10,400 fans in Oakland as the Bruins downed the Seals by a score of 8-1 in what was an otherwise very uneventful contest. And to make it extra special, Phil actually scored number 58 twice. How could that have happened, you ask? Well, I shall tell you. It was actually a pretty neat set of circumstances when you think about it. At 7.33 of the second period, Phil got the puck and beat California goalie Gary Smith with a wicked shot that very few netminders in the history of the National Hockey League would have had any chance of getting in front of. Unfortunately, on the play, referee Ron Wicks immediately put his arms out and waved the goal off. And there's a very interesting photo we'll have in our, our Twitter feed this week about this goal with the look, the baleful look of Phil Esposito at the referee as Wicks signals no goal. Ron informed Phil, that he had blown the de- the play dead because it was in it was uh, necessary to assess a penalty against Phil's line mate, the truculent Wayne Cashman. Undaunted by that disappointment, six minutes later, Phil made another good play in the seal zone. The puck went behind the California goal and. Billy Hickey of the Seals retrieved it, but as he began to move along the boards, Esposito was in forechecking like a demon, and he stole the puck from the veteran Billy Hickey. He quickly wheeled in front of the shot, completely unopposed by any Seals defender, and whipped the puck past Smith, who had again absolutely no chance on the play. On this occasion, Mr. Wicks did not interrupt the celebration, and Phil Esposito and Bobby Hull were even in the record book. It was inevitable that the very next evening, Hull's record would finally fall, and this would be in Inglewood, California, 
at the fabulous forum owned by the Los Angeles Kings and their owner Jack Kent Cook. Uh, the Kings uh, came out, uh, they tried, they have very little to play for now, and the Bruins, as is the uh, their want to do against these lower tier expansion teams, skated to an easy 7-2 victory. Phil scored twice, giving him an incredible total of 64 this season, unheard of in the history of the National Hockey League up to this point. That's three weeks left in the schedule. How many could Esposito end up with at this time? Here's uh, an audio of that record-setting goal by Phil Esposito as told by the Bruins broadcast team. On March 11, 1971, Boston Bruins center Phil Esposito broke Bobby Hull's record for goals in a season. Up front, Esposito tied up by the right. Green drive. Goal! And that's the record breaker. Phil Esposito has scored 59 goals. The new record holder beating Bobby Hull's old mark of 58. The whole Boston bench empties. Well, Phil Esposito wasn't the only one setting records on that night as well. Bobby Orr got into the act himself. Orr assisted on three goals to surpass by one his own mark of 87 assists for a single season. And that record, of course, he established last year, the 69-70 season. The 22-year-old Orr now has 122 points for the season, two more than the record he established in 1969-70 for defensemen. And that's so far ahead of the next number, it's, it's, it's almost ridiculous. Orr also contributed in this game a second-period goal to increase his record uh, goal production by a defenseman in a season. Bobby now has 35 goals on a season, and the majority of forwards in the National Hockey League can never hope to score as many in any season in their careers. The Toronto Star conducted a poll of National Hockey League coaches to learn whom they considered the best in the league in a number of areas, and we have their picks right here. Rated as the most underrated player in the National Hockey League, a young fellow by the name of Dennis Hull. The best shot in the league, no surprise there, Bobby Hull. Also the hardest shot, Bobby Hull. The best stick handler in the league, I was surprised at this one. The coaches picked Phil Esposito. The best penalty killer, no surprise here, Derek Sanderson of the Bruins, although I think Dave Keon would rate higher there. The best skater in the league, none other than, of course, Bobby Orr. The best checker in the league, and there were two players that were picked on this, both centers with the Toronto Maple Leafs, Davey Keon and the veteran Norm Ullman. The best referee in the league, and I really couldn't tell you that there was a best referee myself, but the coaches picked John Ashley and Art Scove. They were tied for that dubious honor, and I would have thought they would also get the honor of 
referee you most complain about, although Wally Harris, a newer official, is making a good run at that these days. The best face-off man in the NHL, according to the coaches, is Derek Sanderson. And again, uh, there were others I thought. Stan Makita is one who was excellent on face-offs. The best fighter in the, fighter in the league? John Ferguson wins that almost unanimously, but some consideration, we understand, was given to Orland Curtinback, and why not? The most dangerous player in the league near the opponent's goal? Phil Esposito, of course. This is an interesting one, whom the coaches picked as the best coach in the National Hockey League in the 1970-71 season? Scotty Bowman of the St. Louis Blues. The smartest player in the National Hockey League, Bobby Orr, no doubt about that. And I think Bobby uh, doesn't even consciously uh, think about all the things he does. He has the best hockey instincts of probably just about anybody in the history of the game. Two rugged defensemen were tied as uh, the best body checker in the game. They would be Bobby Bond of the Toronto Maple Leafs and the St. Louis Blues' toughest plaguer brother. That would be Bob, according to uh, the coaches. The hardest working player in the National Hockey League? That would be Bobby Clark of the Philadelphia Flyers. <laughs> this next category always gets me. Uh, if, if you follow Stan Fischler a lot, and I don't like to rag on Stan all the time, but he's a guy that put himself out there uh, always trying to gain some notoriety, it seemed, with his writing. And one of the things he talked about, in fact, in the sports uh, sporting news a week ago, he wrote about how Brad Park was such a much better defensive defenseman than Bobby Orr, and possibly Bobby Orr's equal. Brad Park probably the, well, was the second best defenseman in the NHL at this time. There was no doubt he was not Bobby Orr. But the National Hockey League coaches in this poll rated their own best defensive defenseman in the National Hockey League. And three men actually tied for that title. They were Ted Harris of the Minnesota North Stars Al Arbor of the Blues, who had left the coaching post that he had to go back on the ice, so he qualified for this. And even in just the few weeks that he was back playing, the coaches recognized him as one of the best defensive defensemen in the NHL. And the other player tied for this honor? None other, according to the coaches, than Bobby Orr. The next one really blew me away. The best goaltender according to the poll of the National Hockey League coaches in the NHL in the 1970-71 season was the old man Jacques Plante of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Plante, according to some of the coaches, is playing better now because he's playing smarter than he did when he was winning five Vezina trophies in a row in the 1950s with the Montreal Canadiens. And Plant himself has said that he feels he's a better goalkeeper now than he ever was at any other point in his NHL career. That's quite quite an honor for the veteran Plant. We, we learned another thing in the final category that the coaches voted on here. We learned that they do not consider a 22-year-old player being young. That's because they did not pick Bobby Orr 
as the best young player in the National Hockey League. Bobby Orr probably qualifies right now as the best player in the National Hockey League. But they did select a best young player, and none of us could argue with this. Those of us who watched the Buffalo Sabres live in their first season knew this. Most of the National Hockey League knew it as well. The best young player, according to NHL coaches, was Gilbert Perot. So that's this week's program, everyone. And what did we learn in this very eventful seven days? Well, we learned that Phil Esposito is going to establish a single-season goal-scoring record that might just stand for many, many years. He's at 60, and it looks like he might just get to 70. And I would never have dreamed that even possible even just a year before that. We learned that once again, a buyer, or I should say a group of buyers, has emerged to purchase that troubled Pittsburgh Penguins franchise. They're pledging to keep the team in Pittsburgh, but the question has to be asked, will this purchase take? And we learned that, very interestingly, the National Hockey League is considering a variety of methods by which the richer teams in the league, and by that we mean player-rich teams in the league, will try and help out the weak sisters. As we mentioned, this was tried once before in the early 1950s with a very bad Chicago Blackhawks team. And by the way, one of the guys the Blackhawks got and all that uh, was for basically nothing from the Montreal Canadiens was Eddie Litzenberger, who captained the team when they won the Stanley Cup in 1961. So there may be some method to the National Hockey League uh, thinking on this uh, on this issue. So next week, uh, the schedule is winding down. The teams are jockeying for playoff spots, and some interesting developments would take place next week that not only would have implications in the playoffs, uh, but would also actually uh, be featured in the league for years down the road. A former college hockey star with Cornell University will make his NHL debut with the Montreal Canadiens, and I think you know who that is. The Chicago Blackhawks will be dealt a very serious blow. Backup goalie Jerry Desjardins is going to re, uh, sustain a serious injury, and another rookie goalie will make his NHL debut. Would either of these two rookie goalies last more than just a few games in the NHL? Well, you can figure it out for yourself when you find out who they are. And next week, there is yet another crisis in the Detroit Red Wing family. Although by the end of the week, it seemed like they were smoothing things over. And we'll talk about that. Just another distraction in the land of Harkness. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. I can't thank him enough for everything he does with this. All his hard work, it's amazing. And in fact, in our Terry Sachuk series we're coming out, Andy has actually composed new background music for that that is very, very enjoyable and very apropos for the subject matter that we're going to be covering in those uh, episodes, which will be available to our Patreon subscribers. Andy uh, is in the business of producing 
podcasts professionally. If you're thinking of starting one up, get a hold of me and I'll hook you guys up. Andy is a true media professional, one of the best in the business. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, of whom my daughter Amy is a is a very uh, strong member, provides our introduction music. And if you ever get a chance to see them perform live, they put on a great high-energy show. Let's hope that we get to see live performances by local bands very soon. Other uh, musical pieces and sound effects in the podcast, as we mentioned, by Andy Cole. And our research comes from uh, all the fine publications at newspapers.com, as well as the Toronto Star and the Toronto Globe and Mail. You can find us at the Hockey Podcast Network with fifty over 50 other hockey podcasts. That's the best place to get this uh, podcast. But you can also get us on Twitter every day at, at Hockey50Years. We have a Facebook page, the 50 Years Ago in Hockey page, and a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. Of course, wherever you get your favorite podcast, you can download us. And on that note, we thank you for tuning into our show, and we will see you next time. When the 